Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, bird behavior. It's STEM for those of us who love hearing hummingbirds sing, even when they forget the words to the song and just hum along. Gillian, what's new? Well, I happened to be with my good friend, Joel McHale, this week, and he <laughs> got like a, a news update on his phone about a shark. I uh, I basically forced him to record a bunch of stem facts, and then thankfully, Tamika kind of edited the clip so it makes sense. So here's the <laughs> edited version. Okay. All right. There is a shark near Greenland. It lives up to three to 400 years old, and it is the oldest it is the longest lifespan of any vertebrate, as opposed to the oldest uh, invertebrate? invertebrate, which is a piece of, I think it's a fungus in Michigan, which is oh, thousands and thousands of years old. Not a, like older than, than redwoods. A fungus in Michigan. I don't know why that got me. I was like, ooh, that, this is a fact for me. As a Michigander? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is Michigander correct? Is that what you say if you're from Michigan? Yeah, Michigander, Michigoose, Michigander. The Michigoose is a, is a joke. I'm funny. <laughs> well, I'm a Pittsburgher. A Pittsburgher? That's adorable. Oh, man. I want to know more about this fungus in Michigan. Yeah, I know. I do. What, what was it called? I found it. I found it. This humongous fungus, great headline writing, LiveScience.com. <laughs> this humongous fungus has been around since the birth of Socrates. Whoa. Mm. Um, it's 2,500 years old, at least, and it is 75 hectares or 0.75 square kilometers or 140 American football fields. And it's in the... U.P. Diana, you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. The Upper Peninsula. (laughs) And I think they first discovered it in the 1980s. But yeah. So my goodness gracious, that fungus has been around at least 2,500 years. All this time, there's been a fungus among us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know what? I was actually thinking about something. This happened in the past, but I was just thinking about it this week, Uh which is... uh, I sometimes get really excited over like natural phenomena um, that probably don't excite other people. And so one day we, my wife and I, we were leaving our apartment and it was like 10 p.m. So it was a little bit late, but not really late. And I looked over and we lived near the Burbank Mountains. Mm-hmm. And I looked over and in the mountains, like all the way at the top of the mountains, there were all these clouds and there was no rain, but there was thunder coming out of the, like, there, I mean, lightning oh. coming out of the clouds. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's a lightning storm. I've read about these. This is incredible. <laughs> I've never seen one. And it was like, it was so cool. It's like swirling all around and all this lightning. I was like, I gotta, I gotta tell somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and we lived in a, like a, like a three brownstone, you know, like three houses, uh-huh. right? And I was like, I gotta tell somebody. And my wife was like, you're telling me. And I was like, no, 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 you're, you're seeing <laughs> this. I gotta tell somebody, somebody else. <laughs> so I, I went and I knocked at our neighbor's door. <laughs> Because I was just like, this is a really rare phenomenon. <laughs> and he, he answered the 
door. And we had like kind of like just moved in like a few months before. And he answered the door and he wasn't wearing a shirt. It was clear that he was just like enjoying his evening. And he was like, is everything okay? And I was <laughs> the instant regret that I felt when he came to the doorstep. I was like, I there's a cloud outside. <laughs> And he looked at me as 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 one would look at someone who has knocked on someone's door to tell them that there's a cloud outside. And he said, "Oh yeah, all right, well, cool, thank you." And closed the door in my face. And the, I mean, the embarrassment that I felt, but it was, I mean, at the time, it was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I relate to this so much. <laughs> I I too am that person. And I I also know the instant regret as soon as it leaves your mouth of like, they're going to be as fascinated by this. as I mean, it's incredible. How could you not get excited? It's a lightning storm. Yes. And then it's like, they don't care. <laughs> I mean, the man was clearly relaxing. I, yeah, but it, Patricia, just like, you know, to her credit, she waited like five minutes before being like, Okay, so remember <laughs> we're gonna work on. It's gonna be enough to tell me. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that's gonna. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be enough to tell me. Instagram, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. Oh, that's sweet. I love that story. Oh my god, I love that story. <laughs> well, should we get to uh, this week's episode? Oh yes. For story time this week, we're joined by uh, actress Olivia Scott Welch. You may have seen her this summer in the Netflix film trilogy, Fear Street. Yeah. Why did I say it like that? (laughs) Uh, Olivia is so cool and smart and fun. I had such an awesome time working with her. Now, way back in the summer of 2019 that we shot those movies, but they just came out the summer of 2021. Wow. Yeah, but she's so awesome, and and, um, I'm so glad she's here to help us share the story of electrical engineer Arturo Campos. Yes, back in the 60s, he worked on spacecrafts that took humans to the moon. But first, we're going to learn all about birds who happened to master the art of flying way before humans did. We have a conversation with Wenfei Tong, a biologist, conservationist, and writer. So in preparation for this interview, we read two of her books. One is called Understanding Bird Behavior, which is a guide to what birds do and why. And we also read Bird Love, which more specifically dives into family life for birds. You know, things like love and courtship and raising chicks. So during the interview, we talk about all of that. Let's just get right to it. Take a listen to our interview with Wenfei Tong. So we usually ask people what's on their playlist at work, but because you've done so much research in birds, we thought we'd ask you, do you have a favorite bird song or bird noise, bird call? Oh, that's a lovely question. I'm so glad you asked that because I've got several. And that's because it reminds me the bird songs or bird calls root me to where I am. Hmm. So the answer would depend partly on where I am and also on who I associate the bird song with. So mm. I actually customize the ringtones on my phones. Oh. You know how a lot of people have customized ringtones for particular people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I match them to a bird that I think oh. suits them. Oh. So like my parents are a yellow-vented bulbul, which is a species in Singapore. And it doesn't throw me off because 
I know that I wouldn't hear that in New York. Mm-hmm. And so if I hear it, I, it brings back Singapore and it brings back my parents immediately. And I, I know it's not, I've scared myself before when I'm bird watching by having my phone ring. <laughs> and then I start looking for this Canada warbler or something that I think is in the bushes. And it turns out the stupid thing is in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, sorry. So I I don't have a particular favorite, but one of my favorites is the yellow vented bulbul, which is very common in Southeast Asia. Mm. This is kind of a, a sweeping question. So take from it what you will. Okay. But I feel like so many people, um, you know, Gillian, even people listening to this podcast have so many questions and are really interested about birds. What do you think it is about birds that makes us so curious? Oh, yes. I, I, well, personally, I find them so uplifting because they're colorful, they sound wonderful, and so they appeal to a lot of the senses that, as humans, we have very finely honed mm-hmm. and that we've evolved to be very sensitive to. I mean, we're very visual and we're very sensitive to sounds. And a lot of us like music. And so I think that's one aspect of it. Another is that they fly. (laughs) A lot of people, a lot of us have longed to fly and love the idea of the the freedom that's symbolized by being in flight and being able to migrate long distances. And, you know, I'm sure with COVID, a lot of us miss flying long distances to visit loved ones or to explore new places. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something about birds that captures the imagination there. And otherwise, they're just, they're slightly furry, even though the fur is essentially feathers. They've adapted scales to turn into these feathery things, which I think as mammals, we tend to have a predisposition to like something that's fuzzy. Mm. Most (laughs) Most people don't really like insects or snakes or it takes a special type of person to like what most people perceive as somewhat slimy but everyone likes warm and fuzzy you know (laughs) kittens and ducklings and things like that so I think birds even though they're actually very reptilian and they're living dinosaurs appeal to that cuteness sort of Walt Disney factor. Yes, we did a whole interview with a paleontologist who studies avian dinosaurs. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Yes, that that also, you know, piqued our curiosity about birds. Um, and, you know, another thing I love about this podcast is finding out not only what do people study, what's their area of study, but why they personally study that. So can you give us a little insight in for, for you? What do you personally get out of or feel when you're observing a bird? So I think part of the reason I started getting into birds was because I grew up in a city as a child and I would have been really excited to be in the African bush and to observe all these large African antelopes and, you know, all this charismatic megafauna like elephants in real life. But I couldn't. So the first thing I did was try to ID all the dog breeds in in Singapore. <laughs> and then when I was about 12, this yellow-vented bulbul, the bird I referred to as one of my favorite songs, nested right outside my bathroom window. And I was curious about what it was. Hmm. And I think 
there's something about birds where they're so ubiquitous. They were everywhere and I could mm. see them in the wild doing their own thing, living mm. their own lives. And for a long time, I mean, we've got wonderful tracking technology now that uses radar and GPS and all sorts of things. But in the past, for, for many decades, we've been able to just track birds and watch individuals and mm. tell the difference between individuals by putting little coloured rings on their legs. Mm. And you, you, you just need coloured rings and a pair of binoculars and you can observe all sorts of fantastic things about their behaviour. Mm. So that makes them really tractable as study organisms, as well as being having this gut fascination from an early age. I was recently in Altadena, and mm -hmm. do you know about all the green parrots in the, like, Yes. <laughs> we should tell our listeners because they may not be familiar. Yes. So for whatever reason, there's a whole population of green parrots in the Pasadena, Altadena area of Los Angeles. And I finally got to see them in real life. And we should put it on our Instagram account. But it was so cool. Like, I felt like as soon as I moved to Los Angeles, people started telling me about these parrots. So it's been a long time coming to finally <laughs> see them. <laughs> I had that experience, too. I was driving. I was driving near the outskirts of Griffith Park. And I heard all this noise. And I looked <laughs> over and this tree was full of green parrots. Mm. And when I say green parrots, I don't mean like the kind of parrots you see on TV that are sort of walking and saying, you know, Polly want a cracker. Mm -hmm. I mean, the loudest, most <laughs> raucous. I've just never heard birds make so much noise unless there's something wrong. And apparently that's just what they do. They just cause a raucous. It, it's it's just so interesting when you see a parrot just totally <laughs> out of context for where you think a parrot lives. And I'll say this, too, when she was talking about different, she has different ringtones for people. My wife is a huge Dolly Parton fan and she has oh. different Dolly Parton songs for people. <gasps> uh, and so everybody kind of has like their own little Dolly Parton song. And, you know, when we first got into a relationship, I was like, is mine? I will always love you. You know, ah. what I mean? she was just like, no. <laughs> oh. Oh. Is it now? It's not. As she continues to point out, she's like, that's a breakup song. Oh, that's And true. I'm like, I mean, you're right. But I'm just like, just title alone. You know, you want the status. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, what's going on? Do birds experience love? Mm. Oh, gosh, such a good question. I think almost as much as humans do, mm. depending on how one defines love. In terms of some of the hormones that we have produced when we experience warm and fuzzy feelings or when we enjoy being near someone like a baby or a loved one, a partner. Birds have a lot of the same hormones mm. uh, evolutionarily. Mm. So in that sense, I think you could say they experience love. In terms of feeling strong emotions and being able to form strong bonds with mm. another individual, whether it's offspring or in some species, a partner with whom you may not have genetically produced all the offspring, but with whom you collaborate to take care of the offspring <laughs> because there's some infidelity as well. There's definitely pair bonding that goes on in a lot of bird species. So this is kind of in the same vein. How do birds find partners? So that really depends on the species. Mm -hmm. But one of the assumptions is just like humans, that there's a certain amount of selection 
to be able to find a partner with good genes. Or at least if you need help with childcare, a partner who is also going to help with the childcare, who's going to be a good parent. So that doesn't apply. The, the good partner bit and the good resources, being able to deliver food or good territory, a good nest, something like that, isn't necessary for all bird species, but definitely the good genes is a popular one. And sometimes these are separate. So a female may be able to mate with a male that has very good genes, but have her regular steady social mate, the partner with whom she's pair bonded, actually take care of the children. But to do so, she has to uh, convince the guy that she's partnered with that he's at least the father of some, if not all, the children. Otherwise, it's not in his evolutionary interest to take care of the kids. So there's quite a lot of evidence for a conflict of interest between the sexes in birds that do pair up and birds that do often need more than one parent to provide food for the chicks, to raise any chicks successfully. There's a certain conflict between the parents as to who does most of the work and who gets to have little infidelity. We we call them extra pair copulations in biology, but essentially it's infidelity (laughs) for, for birds that form pair bonds. I have to ask, how would a female bird convince the male bird that some of the kids were his? So one of my favorite examples of this is the Australian superb fairy wrens, which are very, very common backyard birds in Australia. And they're beautiful. The males are this bright blue. So they're just really stunning looking, tiny birds with long tails. And the females and the juvenile males are all a very pretty brownish gray. Basically, on average, I think two-thirds of the chicks in a nest are not fathered by the dominant male in the group. Wow. And so biologists were really a bit puzzled as to when all this hanky-panky was taking place. (laughs) They didn't see the females doing anything else. So they only knew about the different parentage because of DNA fingerprinting, Mm. which is exactly the same technology we use for humans, just applied to these birds. And so... Then they radio tracked these birds. And that's when they found out that the females sneak off just before dawn, I think. And they go to whichever neighboring male they liked. And the reason they can pull this off is during the day, all these males are off their own territories, busy courting neighboring females. So that's probably one way the males just don't realize is the assumption. This is like an episode of Dynasty. I was just going to say, this is like a nighttime soap. Yeah, I'm like, Riverdale, take note. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about albatrosses since we're getting into oh, yes, birds? Sure. I thought it was so interesting that their relationship, I think very cl- more than any bird I read about, mirrors what we would consider like a marriage. Oh, yes. that's so Because it lasts for so long in many species, and it takes such a long time for some individuals to find a lifetime partner. Mm. How long does it take usually for them, on average, for them to find a partner? I think it depends so much on the species, and I'm not going to remember the exact numbers for each one, but I do remember one of the outer limits being up to 20 years for some for some individuals, but that's rare. And I think it might be the species that has the oldest living albatross on record, which is a female. I think the last count she was in her 80s. Wow. You know, in that sense, it makes sense that 
it's okay to take a long time to find a mate because you want to get it right and you're going to live a long time. So you have plenty of time to reproduce. It's like what my mom told me. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that's very much like humans is that the eggs and the kids are really a big investment that you need a pair to take care of a child. So if you just have one albatross, a single parent, single mom, the, the egg never makes it, the chick doesn't make it. And I think that's partly because of their lifestyle. They have to fly so far and for several days often to find enough fish to feed. And so if you don't have one parent minding the nest, it's just a non-starter. And so one of the examples I wrote about is these same-sex couples of albatross, which people started observing. Those were lazen albatross in Hawaii. And the reason biologists noticed that these might be same-sex couples is because the kids are so expensive to rear and the eggs are really expensive to produce for, from a maternal point of view. So a female will only lay one egg at a time. And these biologists were finding some nests with two eggs in them. Hmm. And that could either mean very, very rare examples of twinning or more likely that was two females, each with one egg, and they were paired up. And what was so sweet about the story is you would be able to record these female albatross having all the rituals that a male-female pair would have. You know, they, they have these wonderful courtship type rituals which they perform these dances every time they see each other again during the breeding season it's like saying your marriage vows again multiple times or something is <laughs> is what it looks like or, or dancing a little ballroom dance that that is a ritual i am going to start calling my wife my albatross <laughs> so that'll be fun <laughs> I have started calling her my albatross. Uh, she does not like it. I was going to ask, how's that gone over? <laughs> not great. <laughs> not, a, not a huge fan of that. Uh, not, uh, she prefers her first name, actually. So. You know, it's good to know. You just learn these things over the course of a relationship. Oh, my partner actually prefers to be called by their first name. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything she said so far that has surprised you about birds? Yes. I knew birds were smart. I knew they were inventive. I knew they could use tools, but I really had not thought about like the interpersonal relationships between birds in that way. You know, I love when this, when episodes make me think about other episodes of our podcast. And so I'm Mm. like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Birds are so old. They're dinosaurs. (laughs) They're dinosaurs, yes. (laughs) You know, they've had so long to develop these complex societies or rituals or interpersonal relationships. They're old. They're dinosaurs. They're old. They're old. (laughs) Okay, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. back. Another thing I found really fascinating that you describe is the relationship between birds and other animals. Like I was telling Diana, I read an article about birds plucking fur off of like dogs and other animals to yes. get insulation yes. for their nests. And you describe birds that um, eat like mites or mm-hmm. little insects. And ticks. Yeah. Can you, can you describe the relationships between some birds and other animals? Absolutely. So a lot of these 
interactions, we assume often that they're mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. And often they start off that way. So, for instance, in Africa, you have these birds called oxpeckers. And they're very well known for picking ticks especially, but external skin parasites of large mammals. And they're actually two species. One of them prefers very large ungulates or mammals like rhinoceros and things like that. And the other one, the other species deals with smaller antelope. But anyway, these oxpeckers typically just go for the insects. And so it's a win-win situation because they have this buffet on the large mammal and the large mammal gets all the parasites removed. But what is sometimes a slightly darker side to the whole experience is the oxpeckers will then get so attached to the extra blood that's oozing from the wound that they'll just keep having a little drink after the the main tick meal. So that's a little more costly for the... That's grading from a mutually beneficial relationship into almost like a parasitic one. Mm -hmm. Another example I really like because it's not something most people would think about is communication with humans and the mutualism with humans. So there's this really cool bird called the greater honey guy. And that's been really well documented first by a Kenyan named Isaac who found that there's particular sounds that the honey guides will make that human honey hunters can key in on as the birds signal that there's honey nearby. And the bird will literally lead the people to the beehive. What the bird gets out of this is it likes wax. It's really weird, but it digests beeswax. Super specialized (laughs) diet. (laughs) And it's very hard for the bird to get at the beeswax unless it has a human hunter to come and smoke out the bees and calm them down. And, you know, the human gets honey out of the deal while the bird gets the wax. But it's a very cool interspecies interaction. So something we've talked about on this podcast for months is anting. Maybe you could give us some uh, insight into anting. Why birds do it? Yeah. (laughs) I guess it's grooming and self-maintenance, no? Ah. I mean, a lot of birds you'll see take dust baths. And Ah. anting is like an extra version of that. The bird can fluff itself up and get rid of all the itches by by having ants come and nibble. Having the ants just having a little nibble, something about that's very cute. (laughs) But, I mean, people do this, don't they? If you like uh, swimming in a coral reef and you like the little fish to come and nibble the dead skin. (laughs) Yeah. From your toes. Yeah. I've heard of, I've never done this personally, but I've heard of people liking to do this. People not only liking, but paying good money. Yes. Okay. For a fancy pedicure. (laughs) I imagine it's similar. What did you think about her answers about anting? I think in my head, I wanted it to be like, weirder than grooming but I'll, I'll take I'll take grooming I, I don't know I want to like the birds to be getting like some kind of like powers from the ants powers? Or I don't know. <laughs> like rechargeable batteries or something yeah something something more elaborate but it totally makes sense yeah yeah but you can make that series like it's like you know they're like the x-men of <laughs> you know of the animal kingdom and they just need their ants to sort of like recharge. 
Yes. Instead of Iron Man needing like a new heart battery, mm-hmm. he needs Ant Man to crawl all over him. <laughs> Besides other predators, um, what are some of the current threats that birds are under? Gosh, so one of the biggest ones is definitely farming and pesticides, agriculture. And that's affecting a lot of grassland birds in particular. Obviously, climate change is another huge Mm. one because all migratory birds have to migrate at the right time. And that's very challenging to do when your food sources and everything else is changing with changing climates. Yeah, and you also mentioned that there are hummingbirds farther north than there were before because of climate change. Yes, and food supplementation. I heard you speak about using birds kind of as an entry point to get people invested in climate change and global warming. Can Can you talk about that? So I think a lot of it comes back to how charismatic birds are. And so it's nice to have something that's really beautiful that people can see as a poster child for the damage that we're doing with climate change. I mean, I guess to me, it it made total sense when you said that, because if if we care about and we love birds, then by extension of that, we need to care for their habitats because otherwise they're not going to have any place to live. Mm-hmm. I mean, in global warming, too, lots of things are affecting it. But I would imagine that loss of natural habitat is something that's really affecting birds. Yeah, hugely. But I mean, both together, really. And it's not just loss of habitat for breeding. It's loss of migratory stopover habitats, too. So a lot of our coastlines all over the world are being destroyed in terms of land reclamation or just things that we do off the coasts that really change the structure of the coastline so that birds that really need, you can imagine taking a long distance flight where, or running a marathon and not having the refueling points Mm. on the marathon and being expected to just do the whole thing without any extra water along the way. That's what a lot of migratory birds experience if they've got stopovers that they've been using for generations. And suddenly the mudflats that provide all this food are gone because they've been developed. And the birds would not know where to go. And you you get tons of birds dying for that reason. So last question. Let's talk about some of the things that we can do to help birds. I've heard you talk about, for instance, something called citizen science. What is that? So it's, I think the newer term for that is community science as well. But the basic idea is, it's back to birds being such an accessible organism. So many of us love watching birds already. And I know that during COVID, even more people have started noticing birds around them and wanting to know what they are. So there have been wonderful efforts, including this platform called eBird that's made by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which really harnesses the interest that a lot of people have in recording the birds that they see all the time and using that to generate much more data than any individual scientist could generate on their own. Hmm. And the eBird data has been used for some really, really fantastic things because This gives scientists a database of all the birds seen at a particular time, at a particular place. Hmm. That's one of the best pieces of evidence we've got that birds are changing their migratory timings with the climate changes. 
because of the number of sightings that people can see over the years that are recorded. So the first recordings of a particular species, or most of these migratory species, has just has shifted over the years, hmm. and a lot of that data is from eBird. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, we've also got these wonderful long-term bird counts, like. Uh, in North America, we've got something called the Christmas Bird Count and the Breeding Bird Survey. And th- these have been going on for decades and they're mostly run by, you know, Audubon societies. And it's always amateurs, but the, the data collected by them have been used really well for conservation biologists, by conservation biologists. Thank you so much. This has been such a great interview. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you both. Let's take one last break. Then it's story time. We'll be right back. And we're back. It's story time. Story time. Okay, we have a special guest this week. Gillian, would you like to introduce our special guest? Yes, our special guest this week is indeed very special. She is my Fear Street co-star, incredible actress, wonderful person, Olivia Scott Wells. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this, uh, Olivia. I miss seeing you. I got to see you at a couple Fear Street premieres a couple months ago, but now it's been too long, so we had to have you on the podcast as an excuse for us to hang. <laughs> Zoom-wise. <laughs> yes. So we, we love to have people talk about nerdy facts mm-hmm. on this show. Do you have anything for us? Okay. There's a city in California that's not a city anymore because now... It's basically there's an underwater city in Northern California and it's under a lake and it was called, I pulled it up to get the facts right. It's called Kenneth, Kenneth, California. And it was like a mining town and it was flooded by like the Shasta Dam. And now it's the Shasta Lake. Basically people have been like going to on summer lake trips to this lake and like being like, oh, we live in Northern California. Like, let's go to the lake and swim around. And there's been a whole city under it the entire time. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. You know what? We actually did a whole interview with an author named Anna Louise Newitz because they wrote a book called Four Lost Cities, mm-hmm. all about four different cities that were abandoned over the course of history. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their book was really incredible. And I think you would really enjoy it. Yeah, I'm positive I would. Like, I would probably stay up and finish reading it. I did. (laughs) That is so awesome. Thank you for that. And, you know, we're not talking about lost cities in this story time, but we are talking about exploring new spaces. For listeners who've been with us for a while, you've heard us interview astronauts who are training for the Artemis missions. And those are NASA's next big venture, getting humans to the moon. So it's actually going to be multiple missions. And the first one launches this fall. So as we get ready for our next journey to the moon, and there's lots of talk about high-tech rockets and spacecrafts, we thought we'd look back at a story during the Apollo era. Yeah, it's been decades since humans have made a moon landing, and we used completely different technology back then. We want to dig into that a little bit. So this week, we're highlighting a person that was instrumental on the technical side of the Apollo missions. This is the story of Arturo Campos, an electrical engineer who's best known for his work on the Apollo spacecrafts. 
Arturo is born in 1934 in Laredo, Texas, a small city on the U.S.-Mexico border. He's raised in a Mexican-American family. His dad works as a mechanic, and Arturo actually helps him at the auto shop when he can. In high school, with the encouragement of a chemistry and physics teacher, he sets his sights on going to a community college, and then eventually he goes to a university. He graduates in 1956 with a degree in electrical engineering. Okay, so, so much is going on right now. Now, at this point, we're in the early years of the space race. The Soviet Union and the United States are both strategically expanding their missile testing. The Soviet Union launches Sputnik 1, the world's first human-made satellite in 1957. Then, in a move that was 100% reactive, the U.S. brings together different agencies to form NASA. So just two years after Arturo graduates, NASA is established. Talk about good timing. Arturo is working at Kelly Air Force Base, supervising aircraft maintenance. Then he makes it his mission to get a job at NASA. Reflecting on it later, he says, When NASA came up and I heard they were going to work in space, I knew it was going to be a big challenge. I didn't know what I would do, but I wanted to be a part of the team. And he does join the team. He moves to the Houston area where the newly established Manned Spacecraft Center is. Eventually, that would become Johnson Space Center. He's one of very few Mexican-Americans on the team, something that doesn't go unnoticed with the mostly white staff. According to NASA's own records, Arturo encouraged them to recruit more Hispanic employees. His extensive knowledge of electrical systems allows him to work on several projects, which must have been really fun. He was doing research and developing systems for spacecrafts. So those require electrical systems and backup systems that'll keep working even after you push past the fiery pressure of the Earth's atmosphere. Arturo works quite a bit on the Apollo program. We can think about those spacecrafts as having primarily three sections. First is the command module. It consists of the crew quarters and flight control. Another section is called the service module. That's your propulsion and spacecraft support systems, where you have an engine and electrical power to get you in and out of the moon's orbit. It's also where you've got fun stuff to keep you alive in space, like heat and oxygen. <laughs> and finally, you have a third section. That's the lunar module. So that unit can actually detach. Imagine this, you fly to the moon, begin to orbit the moon, and then while the rest of the spacecraft stays in orbit, the lunar module detaches and takes the crew to the moon's surface. And then after you finish doing, you know, astronaut stuff on the moon, the lunar module also takes you back to the rest of the spacecraft. Then you can return to Earth. So the lunar module is really important. And Arturo is one of the go-to figures on its electrical systems. But by Apollo 13, he also became one of the folks tapped to help solve a problem. A big one. Let's back up. So Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 both successfully land humans on the moon. And they get back home safely. Apollo 11 takes eight days round trip. Apollo 12 takes 10 days. Apollo 13, well, things didn't go according to plan. In the first two days of the mission, an oxygen tank in the service module fails. Very, very bad news. The crew knows that they can't land on the moon. The mission definitely needs to be aborted. They're short on oxygen and not just for breathing. It's also used for generating electric power. Remember what I said about service modules? 
Yeah, that's the life-saving and propulsion part. Okay, so the two astronauts aboard the spacecraft are stuck and the heat's not working. They're slowly freezing in space and unable to power their way back to Earth. A lot of NASA folks are called in to assist with the crisis. Fortunately, Arturo and his colleagues have given some thought about what to do if something like this happens. He said, when they called me up, I rewrote the plan on the spot. I had written procedures for that eventuality a year before. They end up using the amended plan Arturo and his colleagues came up with. The directions are given to Mission Control, and Mission Control talks directly to the astronauts. The crew is guided into the lunar module. There, they're instructed how to reroute its power to the command module and service module. It's just enough to get the heat working again and power the crew back to Earth. Arturo receives the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his role in getting the Apollo 13 astronauts back home. In total, he spends about 20 years working for NASA before he retires. He passed away in 2004, but his story has been resurfacing lately as NASA prepares to return to the moon. They're testing the new tech for the Artemis missions. Artemis 1 is a vehicle that will orbit the moon uncrewed, except for one occupant. A mannequin the team has named Commander Munikin Campos. If you're a nerd like us, and you're going to be glued to some screen streaming the launch, you can catch that spacecraft launch this November. Oh, my goodness. That was a great story time. I loved it. And I loved our interview today. I still feel like I have more questions about birds. Oh, well, this is actually really perfect because there is a BuzzFeed quiz called 38 Questions I've Always Wondered About Birds. Uh, And bird experts in a conservation group seriously took the quiz. (laughs) Oh, this is incredible. It's like BuzzFeed did an actual Q&A with birds. (laughs) Question question number one, where do you go when it rains? I've always wondered that. What do you think the answer is? Secret bird clubhouse. (laughs) I'm going with that. Secret bird clubhouse. Yes. The bird box. (laughs) So turns out most birds are weatherproof. They use preening oils to stay greased up. And their feathers are built to repel water, so they just hang out. Okay. All right. All right. This is uh, BuzzFeed question number 21. What is your relationship with squirrels? You guys get along? I feel like you're coworkers. (laughs) And our bird expert said, squirrels steal the seed out of bird feeders, which is very true. And they poach California quail eggs. Hard pass. No! That's like I used to have a coworker that used to steal people's lunches out of the... um, What? Yeah. I I I feel the need to clarify to say, not on any show, (laughs) but I had a coworker (laughs) at another job that used to steal people's lunches out of the (sighs) refrigerator. Well... There is a squirrel in my neighborhood that throws half-eaten apples at me. So um, I, you know, I think I like birds better. Or maybe that squirrel's like, you need fiber. It's an important (laughs) part of the diet. Ah, that was awesome. Okay, I think it's time to read some reviews. Yes, let's. Can I read this one? Please. This one is from B-Zen. 
My son and I recently started listening to Periodic Talks and we're hooked. We listened to the fantastic Brains On podcast, kid-focused, science-based for a few years. But now that my son is a middle schooler, he's told me he enjoys Periodic Talks more. Oh, It's not a kid-centric podcast, but it certainly is kid-friendly. It feels like a science podcast that's easily accessible, not too scientifically dense, but doesn't explain everything like I'm in second grade. They found <laughs> a great balance. Give it a listen. Thank you, oh, Bizen. That's a dream of a review. Thank you so much. We have a we have a, you know, potential follow-up question. What would a kid-friendly periodic talks the TV show be like? Mm. Oh, I think it would be just like this. I think it would be us getting to hang out with cool people and ask, you know, interesting questions and occasionally nerd out over birds and stars, you know, things in the sky. (laughs) Yeah, the only thing I wish we could do that we can't do because it's a podcast is like, go to work with Tracy Drain at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or go interview Victor Glover at NASA. You know, it would be fun to be able to see some of these people at their workplaces. Do you want to read this other review? Absolutely. Um, This one is from, is it possible to get a name? (laughs) Their comment is about the episode featuring acoustic ecologist Michelle Fournette, who studies the sounds of marine animals. I just found your podcast and I'm really enjoying it. I listened to the most recent episode with my 10-year-old son and he made an interesting comment about the whale's whoop noise. He said that it reminds him of laughter in that all humans understand that noise regardless of what language they speak. Thanks for the great shows and discussions that follow. Thank you. And thank you for leaving such a great review. You can write us a review on Apple Podcasts. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Periodic Talks. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. And we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.